The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He also kind of has his own, you know, sort of segregationist views that come from uh, his, his early years in many ways, uh, but he often describes the reason that he's going after uh, the civil rights movement, racial minorities, as being uh, because they might be infiltrated by communists. And so you can see a whole range of subjects and ideas really being uh, infused into this very broad cultural and social and political crusade that he takes on in addition to these kind of narrower national security questions. I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 6, 2022. J. Edgar Hoover served as director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation for 48 years, from 1924 until 1972. Since his death, Hoover has become one of the most reviled figures in American history due to FBI operations under his leadership to spy on Americans, including government officials, in order to manipulate democratic politics. To discuss Hoover's extraordinary role in American politics in the 20th century and the continuing influence of his legacy today, I sat down with Yale University history professor Beverly Gage, who is the author of a new biography of Hoover called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. She and I discussed why Hoover's place in American history is much more complex than conventional wisdom suggests, Hoover as a master bureaucrat who managed the press, Hollywood, and senior government officials to maintain enormous popularity throughout his reign as FBI director, how Hoover the fierce anti-communist was the key to the elimination of McCarthyism in the 1950s, and much, much more. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 6, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. Beverly Gage, congratulations on your monumental and definitive biography of Hoover. I thought I knew a lot about the man and his institution, but I learned a lot of new things, including many surprising things in just about every one of your 58 chapters. <laughs> Thanks so much for reading all 58 chapters, Jack. I read them all, and it, it's it's shocking to say, but it, it it's, it's a page turner. I mean, Hoover had a fascinating life, and he was involved in everything. Yeah, the, the book is long, but the chapters are short, right? That's exactly right. And they really do move along. It's really an extraordinary book. So- one of the things that it shows is that Hoover was central to nearly every major political event in U.S. history during the middle half of the 20th century. And my overall reaction to the book was that Hoover was not nearly as bad or evil a figure as the post-church committee history since 1975 had portrayed him, and frankly that I assumed and have written was, was more or less true. You don't shy away from talking about Hoover's warts in the book, though you give them new detail and clarity. Uh, in many respects. But I think it's fair to say you present the warts in a larger and at least for me, quite different context. In particular, you show that the modern conventional wisdom about Hoover, namely that he was a backroom villain who manipulated American politics in secret, the standard view, that that view is misleading or incomplete to the point of wrong. So do you agree with my characterization of, 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 of the book? And if so, what are the main ways that the conventional wisdom about Hoover's time as director uh, is misleading or wrong? Yeah, I do basically agree with everything that you've just said. So one thing to say about Hoover is that he's such a villain in our story of the 20th century that there was kind of only one direction to go with him. Um, so that even taking a kind of humanizing or understanding or contextualizing approach to thinking about Hoover, and those are really the approaches that I tried to take, was to some degree going to make him, you know, less 
a kind of pure evil villain sitting in a back room manipulating everyone else. So some of that just has to do with the fact that Hoover's reputation was really so uh, extreme in, in popular culture. But I think perhaps more importantly, one of the points that I try to make in the book is that our image of Hoover as someone who sort of operated in secret, manipulated people, he did those things for sure. And as you say, there's a lot of that in the book, but that sort of obscures the great fact of his life, which is that he was incredibly popular and incredibly well supported by Republicans, by Democrats, by the White House, by Congress, by his popular constituencies for most of his career. And so if there are things that we don't like about what J. Edgar Hoover did, I think we can't just say, okay, there was one bad man. We really have to think about ourselves, our institutions, our political culture. And I I tried to put Hoover sort of in the center of all that. Yeah. And you did so extremely well. So what were the secrets to him? And he was, as you show, just enormously popular with a few tiny little dips from almost from the beginning, and especially beginning in the Roosevelt administration until the last you know, decade, and especially the last five years, when even then his popularity was still high. How did he, how did he pull this off? I and mean, what does it reflect? He, I think, kind of pulled on two different political traditions. And that meant that lots of people could see in Hoover whatever they wanted to see. And one was a kind of good government, progressive, career, civil service, professional tradition that uh, he learned himself during the progressive era and carried on. And for a lot of his early career, that was kind of the FBI's signature were these professional, scientific, career servants who were going to stand outside of politics. On the other hand, he was also a very powerful uh, social conservative, cultural conservative, and he expressed a lot of ideas that were popular in broad constituencies, but particularly among conservatives for most of his career. So anti-communism, racial conservatism, law and order politics, a championing of kind of Christianity as being really central to the American way of life. And so he represented lots of different things to lots of different people. So I think that's one piece of his longevity. Um, Another is that he was really a master bureaucrat and not just in the sense of kind of amassing his files, though he was, of course, extraordinarily good at that. Uh, But he was a very good uh, builder of a kind of broad political base. So uh, one of my favorite chapters in the book uh, was about the moment that congressional committees begin to get professional staff. And a lot of them come to the FBI and they say, you know, Director Hoover, will you help us with your fine investigators? And uh, Hoover mostly says, yes, you know, let me let me help you out with that. And that meant that he had channels into many of the most important congressional committees that influenced the FBI appropriations, judiciary, the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee, the House on American Activities Committee. Um, and so he had a pretty wide variety of political skills. And of course, he was extremely good at public relations. Yeah. Could you just say a bit more about the public relations piece? I, this was something I was completely unaware of. And he I guess he really got going with it under Roosevelt. Um, But can you just say more about that, about how sensitive Hoover was to public relations and how successful he was? He, in the 1930s, started to build up this kind of extraordinary PR division within the FBI. And he himself was a little bit ambivalent about it at first. He actually was shy in certain ways. He really hated public criticism. And so uh, he used the FBI both to promote his own image and to go after anyone who criticized him or criticized the Bureau. But a lot of what this division did was deal with the press, deal with Hollywood, pump out articles under Hoover's byline, expressing all of his favorite ideas, particularly on the subjects of crime and communism, to kind of build up the legend of the FBI And then Hoover also got lucky in the 1930s because uh, the film codes in Hollywood declared in the middle of the 30s that 
basically films in which the criminal was going to win were no longer viable. They weren't going to make those kinds of films anymore. And so they went around hunting for for heroes and they happened upon Hoover, the FBI, and his Corps of G-Men, which stands for government men. Uh, And of course, the title of the book is G-Man, Government Man, because Hoover was kind of the, the king of them all. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning and the early chapters are amazing. Hoover, on a few occasions during his long reign, almost lost his job. But I was surprised to learn that he almost didn't get the job in the first place. He started off in 1919 in the radical division of the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, as the FBI was called then. And he then became deputy to the director, I think, of the Bureau in the early 1920s. And in those jobs, as you show, he he was at the center of a a huge scandal, the Red Scare, and he had a more central part than I realized. And then he was at least associated with the corruption in the senior leadership of the Justice Department in the early years of the Coolidge administration. So when it came time for Harlan Fisk Stone to pick a new FBI director, he chose Hoover on an acting basis. And I have to say, I don't think that you really explained why, and I don't know if we know why. Why did why did Stone choose this person who had shown an acumen for collecting secret information on people <laughs> during the Red Scare and had used it in a controversial way? Why did he choose Hoover? It is a great question, and you're absolutely right. I think, as the as the book suggests, Hoover's first years in the Justice Department and at the Bureau were extremely messy. Uh, there were scandals about political surveillance and the Palmer raids. There were kind of basic corruption scandals uh, during the Harding administration. Um, so, 1924, Harlan Stone becomes Attorney General after this moment of kind of corruption and of the most basic sort, you know, poker games, whiskey, bribery, all of the all of the really kind of uh, basic but quite extreme scandals of the early 20s. Um, And so why did he pick Hoover, who had been close to, if not entirely orchestrating a a lot of what had been happening? Um, I think probably the easiest answer is that he needed someone in that moment. And if Hoover was nothing else, he was quite a good administrator. And so when he became acting director, which was in May of 1924, I don't think there was necessarily any intention of making him director on a permanent basis, much less for the next 48 years. Uh, But Hoover was extremely good throughout his career, and even as a young man, first of all, in promoting himself as this sort of upright character who could be depended upon, and secondly, in pleasing men who were his superiors. And so he really goes out of his way during this critical set of months in the summer and fall of 1924 uh, to please Harlan Stone, to reach out to the ACLU and get figures like Roger Baldwin on board with his potential appointment and to kind of assure them that everything that had happened during the the teens and early 20s uh, was despite his presence and not because of it. Yeah. So I think I said mistakenly that that the Justice Department scandals that he was associated with took place under Coolidge and it was Harding. Is that right? That's right. I mean, Harding died and then uh, they were still going on under Coolidge, but they were really the the Harding administration and the Harding appointees. Right. Okay. So he's made acting director and then he becomes director because he's pretty competent and he stays out of trouble. And he spent the next eight or so years on what I would call credibility building and professionalizing of the Bureau. And these were, as I read them, relatively quiet years. The FBI did not have very broad jurisdiction. But then came the election of Franklin Roosevelt. And one of the big surprises of the book to me was how central Roosevelt was to Hoover's and the FBI's modern shape and success. Can you explain that? 
That was a surprise to me too, uh, but it is true. In the it's the 30s and 40s that really make the modern FBI. So that that first decade, as you suggest, that Hoover's there as director, he's mostly interested in kind of reforming the bureaucracy, hiring his group of lawyers and accountants. But his vision is pretty limited. He thinks that he's going to have kind of this tight-knit, small core of federal men who have professional college-educated backgrounds and who are going to sort of apply the latest scientific methods to things like antitrust investigations, the very small number of federal crimes that are actually in existence then. And he has to make this huge pivot all of a sudden in the 1930s. And then when the war comes around and he has to do it fast and it's pretty dramatic. So the first thing that happens is that Roosevelt looks to the FBI to kind of fight the quote unquote war on crime, which is really central to the politics of the New Deal most famously against uh, bank robbers like John Dillinger, against kidnappers, um, and both kidnapping and bank robbery become federal crimes in the 1930s. And the FBI agents, uh, Hoover's nice corps of gentlemen, um, suddenly are told to carry guns and to get into basically violent warfare with this this very prominent group of kind of celebrity criminals. Uh, So that's one thing that happens under Roosevelt. A second is that it's really Roosevelt who pushes Hoover into kind of selling the work of the FBI and pushes him into building that PR apparatus that Hoover proves to be so good at. And then finally, the really critical thing that happens with Roosevelt is that he licenses the FBI to go back into domestic intelligence as the war approaches. So uh, both looking at fascist and communist groups in the United States, also doing some surveillance of Roosevelt's own political critics and enemies, particularly figures like Charles Lindbergh. Um, But it is out of these impulses that the FBI gets what are still its two fundamental missions today. One is federal law enforcement and the other is domestic intelligence. They're both products of of the Roosevelt years and the FBI expands really dramatically during that period. I was surprised also, you mentioned this briefly, and again, this is just my ignorance about FDR, but FDR was not afraid to push Hoover to use secret surveillance, including for his own political ends. And it wasn't just Lindbergh. As I recall, it was he was worried about union agitators. He, I think he was worried about some people in the civil rights movement, which both of which surprised me. Am I right in remembering that? That's absolutely right. Yeah. And Roosevelt, first of all, was not much of a civil libertarian. (laughs) And one of my favorite documents in this is, is a moment in 1940, you know, as the war is picking up in Europe. Uh, and the Supreme Court has said, you're really not supposed to be wiretapping. And Roosevelt just sort of sends this memo to Hoover that says, well, I know the Supreme Court said this, but surely they don't mean in cases of national security. So go ahead. And then national security becomes defined extremely broadly to include really anyone who is critical of Roosevelt's views on the war, uh, to include civil rights organizers, to include the labor movement, you know, all in the context of if the uh, workers go on strike, that's going to disrupt war production, et cetera. So, but, but, but it's an extremely broad definition. So do you, it seems to me sometimes in the book, you hint or suggest that, uh, I'll put it starkly, that Hoover was surprisingly kind of a quintessential New Dealer, I should say. And he was just another, it was just the security element of good governance that Roosevelt was pushing. And we often think about, you know, I think about Hoover, Deep State as something, you know, contrary to or at odds with the state apparatus. But it seems to me that the Roosevelt episode shows that he was going hand in hand with with everything else that was going on in Roosevelt's administration. Now, I didn't get the sense that Roosevelt saw that there were thought that there was any difference in philosophy in, in building up the power of the FBI. Yeah, I wouldn't describe Hoover as a New Deal liberal, <laughs> and he wasn't. No, 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 he wasn't a New Deal Democrat, and he wasn't a New Deal liberal, but he seemed like a, a New Dealer 
is what I'm saying. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely correct. And uh, in two different ways. So one is that Hoover was a true believer in the power of the state and the power of the state to kind of do good things for the country at large. Now, you, you can contest what his vision of do good things was, but uh, but he believed in the federal government. He believed in federal power. He believed in using the state. And that put him, you know, pretty firmly in the kind of New Deal pantheon. And I think the other piece is that we tend to think about the New Deal as being primarily about you know, labor, social welfare provisions, social security, and all of that is certainly true. But there was a really big, uh, first of all, criminal law enforcement aspect to the New Deal that gets dropped out a little bit. Um, and then, of course, to the degree that the New Deal becomes the reigning logic of the war, a national security logic uh, that fits right in there. And so Hoover's war on crime, all of that uh, showdowns with John Dillinger, uh, they were really high priorities for the Roosevelt administration. And in fact, you know, Roosevelt's brand of liberalism sort of saw social security and crime fighting as similar things his vow to use the power of the federal government to bring a kind of security and stability and safety to American society that uh, the depression, but also other aspects of disorder had kind of rent asunder. And so, yeah, I think crime fighting is right there in the New Deal. Yep. So Roosevelt obviously presided as president over most of World War II. So a lot of what you said happened during World War II. Is there anything else that happened in the war? Were there any other notable events in the war that enhanced Hoover's power or defined who he was? He was famously uh, against the Japanese internment, for example. But what, you know, what, what else about the war affected Hoover's status and power? Well, I think there were a couple of big things. One is just that the FBI grew enormously. I mean, like so much of the rest of the federal government, we tend to, again, we talk about uh, that as if it happened in the 30s under the New Deal, and that's partly true. But the real explosion in the size of the federal government in federal power uh, happens during the war itself, and that was true at the FBI. So Hoover had had a pretty small organization, even in the 1930s, and then it more or less quadruples in size during the war and then stays at this much bigger size uh, when the war comes to an end. And it's also a moment where he actually learns the arts of intelligence, and they have a bunch of pretty spectacular failures early on, often talking about uh, Nazi espionage and sabotage rather than the communists who are going to become really central after the war. Uh, but one of Hoover's great triumphs and one of the things that really makes his name is this amazing uh, saboteurs case uh, in which the Nazis send over a couple of uh, teams of agents in U-boats to pull up. Uh, they really just literally pull up on Long Island and in Florida, get, they get dropped off. Uh, and then a couple of them turn, go to the FBI, uh, and, the, and the FBI rounds them up to spectacular headlines. So after the war, Hoover emerges with extraordinary power and popularity. And then the next big series of events, there were a lot of things going on, but, but the next big series of events, he's obsessively focused on, on the communist threat, as he put it. So again, one of the major things that I was surprised to learn about was Hoover's role in killing McCarthyism and how Hoover kind of emerged from the McCarthyism episode in the 50s as something of a bipartisan hero for his approach to anti-communism. That might have been the most the most uh, surprising thing I, I learned in the book. Can you that I get that right? And can you explain? You did get it right. And I, I also was <laughs> surprised to find that as I was doing the research. You know, Anti-communism is the central cause, really, of, of Hoover's life, certainly in terms of uh, politics and national security. And so I think for good reason, we basically have this idea that Hoover, McCarthy, they're sort of these interchangeable figures. Uh, but it was really interesting to see how differently they were perceived at the time. So Hoover, first of all, 
is there doing a lot of pretty aggressive anti-communist work before McCarthy. He's there during McCarthy's reign, which is pretty short, which is just 1950 to 1954. And of course, he vastly outlasts McCarthy. Um, And so I think he's really the more important figure in that sense. But even during McCarthy's heyday, Hoover is a friend of his. They share lots of information at various points, but he's also a real critic. And he doesn't like McCarthy because, first of all, McCarthy keeps saying, you know, if you could just see the FBI files, you'd realize that everything I'm saying is true. And Hoover never wanted to show people his files. Uh, But he also thought that McCarthy was irresponsible, that he was a demagogue, that he was lying, uh, that he was just out for headlines. And so uh, in the end, he really cooperates with the Eisenhower administration in, in trying to bring McCarthy down and actually succeeding in it. And one of the strategies of the Eisenhower administration was to say, we don't need a guy like Joe McCarthy because we have this responsible, respectable, you know, kind of state-based anti-communist who is J. Edgar Hoover. And his anti-communism, which he was not shy about talking about, was one element of his conservatism. And as you point out, he was a public figure speaking out often throughout his decades in favor of his favorite conservative causes. You mentioned some of them earlier, anti-communism and um, his, his view of the role of Christianity in American society. So can you talk about, can you just flesh out what his conservative commitments were? And and the thing I really didn't understand, and it's not that you didn't explain it, but I just didn't figure out how it fit together, was Hoover had this extraordinarily popularity with liberal administrations. I mean, he and FDR were very close. And at the same time, Hoover was giving speeches that were peddling a conservative vision, including sometimes criticizing elements of the New Deal. So I just couldn't figure out how he was able to pull off his enormous popularity and push a particular conservative vision. Yeah, I think that is the the puzzle of his life. It's the puzzle of the book. And sometimes it makes a lot of sense. You can see how those things did fit together. And other times it's just a contradiction. (laughs) So um, a lot of our politics are are contradictory. Um, And I think Hoover was, was no real exception on that. You know, anti-communism as kind of the reigning logic of his worldview, I think, is sort of interesting for for a few reasons. One is that you, you could conceive of a different person in office say Hoover had stepped down at the end of the war, there wasn't really anyone in the early Cold War who wasn't going to be an anti-communist in Washington, and particularly in a position like this. Uh, But you could conceive of someone who might define that quite narrowly, right? Who might define that as being primarily about preventing espionage, maybe looking at the Communist Party as an institution because they were, in fact, getting money and support from the Soviet Union and kind of leaving it there, right? That would be a reasonable kind of Cold War liberal vision. Uh, But Hoover had a much bigger vision than that, and he really saw the struggle against communism as an existential struggle that touched every aspect of American life. And I think this is where we can see some of his uh, fundamentally conservative ideas coming in. So uh, one is that he really viewed religion as central to this struggle, right? The struggle against atheistic communism. He spends a lot of the 40s and 50s urging people to go to Sunday school, to put a kind of conservative Christianity at the center of their lives, of their national identity. On race, uh, he also kind of has his own, you know, sort of segregationist views that come from uh, his, his early years in many ways. Uh, But he often describes the reason that he's going after uh, the civil rights movement, racial minorities, as being uh, because they might be infiltrated by communists. And so you can see a whole range of subjects and ideas really being uh, infused into this very broad cultural and social and political crusade that he takes on in addition to 
these kind of narrower national security questions. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. But just to follow up on one thing, and maybe the answer is we just don't know, but I just... He was able to pull both things off. He was able to have, you know, be courted as a, in the New Deal world and, uh, you know, later in the LBJ world and yet at the same time articulate these views. I mean, is it is it that he just had so much power and was so central to what those presidents wanted to accomplish that that was just a, a cost they paid or did they not care or, or we just can't figure it out? Yeah, so I think he was incredibly useful to them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, m- there were a couple of presidents who really didn't like him, Truman and Kennedy in particular. But Hoover was very useful. They were afraid of his popularity. Um, and I think actually for the Democrats in particular, you know, we just had a very different Democratic Party and a very different Republican Party. And so Hoover was tremendously popular among conservative Democrats, among Southern Democrats. In some ways, uh, they were his chief constituency. And so when you look at a figure like Kennedy, you know, he had lots of reasons not to want to let Hoover go. But one of them that he stated was that he thought there would be a revolt among the conservative wing of the Democratic Party among Southerners if he fired Hoover. So I think that they also were just concerned about Hoover's Hoover's political base. So a major theme in the book is uh, Hoover's racism, which you trace to his youth. And you show what impact it had uh, throughout his career. Could you summarize that? One of the most interesting pieces that I was able to to trace out a little bit in his early years uh, was his college fraternity, which was this fraternity called Kappa Alpha. It's still around today. There are lots of chapters. It was a fraternity that had been created in the aftermath of the Civil War in order to basically carry on the lost cause of the white South. And by the time Hoover joined it in the early 20th century, it was this very explicitly segregationist fraternity, explicitly Southern fraternity. Its most famous national member uh, was a guy named Thomas Dixon, who was famous novelist who actually wrote the books upon which Birth of a Nation, the famously racist film of, of 1915, was based. And so, you know, I think in his early years, you can see institutions like Kappa Alpha really shaping his worldview. And then it's worth remembering that Washington itself, and Hoover was a child of Washington, he was born there, he grew up there, you know, during the late 19th and early 20th centuries is becoming a segregated city in a much more aggressive way. Federal employment is becoming segregated just at the moment that Hoover's entering the federal government. And so, you know, most people, many people in any rate in Washington are kind of infused with this, uh, this early 20th century segregationist sentiment. And, uh, and I think Hoover was no exception. And yet he wasn't, uh, it didn't stop him, uh, and you can explain why, from, you know, maybe begrudgingly, but going after some of the white lynchers in the 40s and the KKK at times and other conservative groups. Um, you basically say that 
And he did it either begrudgingly or certainly not with the enthusiasm that he went against civil rights protesters. But And he was also central to LBJ's uh, civil rights, or at least central, had a big role in helping LBJ get through his civil rights plank. So he was actually, you know, he, he, he wasn't a, 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 a one-dimensional racist. That's absolutely true. And uh, in some ways, those were the most interesting chapters for me to write, because I think you know, it's no surprise to learn that, that J. Edgar Hoover was racist in many ways. What is probably more surprising are to see these moments when his role as a federal law enforcement official really does trump his own conservatism, his own racial views. And there are a lot of them, actually. Hoover, when he went after white supremacist groups or neo-Nazi groups, uh, there tended to be two criteria. One was the use of violence. And the other was that he really didn't like groups that were sort of thumbing their noses at federal authority, at federal law. So an organization like the Ku Klux Klan, which did both, uh, he saw as a force of lawlessness, of disorder, uh, a challenge to the legitimacy of the FBI and of federal law. And in cases like that, the FBI really did go after these groups pretty aggressively. So I describe um, its anti-lynching efforts in the 40s, where they did pretty big investigations, many of which didn't actually produce great results. You've got white juries in the South, et cetera. There were lots of barriers there. They were a little more successful in the 60s in going after the Ku Klux Klan. And in fact, they're using a lot of the same techniques against the Klan that they're using against the civil rights movement, against Martin Luther King, you know, for better and and for worse. And you mean COINTELPRO. Could you explain what that is, why Hoover began it, and how he used it? Yeah, COINTELPRO is, I think, probably the most notorious program of Hoover's career still. And most people today associate it rightly with attacks on the left in the 60s. Uh, So going after the anti-war movement, going after the civil rights movement, the Black Panthers, student activists. Uh, But there are a couple of interesting things to say about COINTELPRO that I think are, are less widely known. So One is that it wasn't just a surveillance operation. COINTELPRO stands for Counterintelligence Program. And what the FBI meant by counterintelligence was kind of disruption techniques. You send an informant in to to ask dumb questions during a meeting to make it uh, less fun for everyone there. Or more ominously, uh, you are planting fake news articles, spreading rumors, trying to sow uh, factionalism, paranoia, that sort of thing within social movements. And this started as a program really aimed at the Communist Party in the late 50s. Uh, And so it has earlier origins than I think a lot of people understand. And then interestingly, there were right-wing groups The FBI had a part of COINTELPRO called COINTELPRO White Hate, and it was under that program that they applied these techniques to the Klan, to neo-Nazi groups, to white supremacist groups, militia organizations, um, a whole range of kind of right-wing vigilante organizations. So COINTELPRO was, when it was revealed, was perhaps Hoover's most controversial um, program that he was running. And again, one of the surprising things to me that you show is that it wasn't exactly a super secret within the government that he had, I don't know if you call it buy-in or cover, but people in Congress and in the White House and Justice Department knew what he was doing. And more broadly, and this gets to changing conventional wisdom on Hoover as a a lone actor, a deep stater, he was pretty careful to get sign-off or at least acquiescence in many of the things he was doing. He was a stickler for getting the Justice Department to write him a legal memo before he expanded certain uh, programs. So talk about this and talk about why he did this and how it changes our view of Hoover. 
Yeah, there's some really interesting newly released documents that show that Hoover, often in off-the-record testimony, in National Security Council meetings, these sorts of things, actually did tell people in some basic way, the president, Congress, uh, we have this program of disruption aimed at the Communist Party and later at other organizations uh, that wasn't secret. Now, many of the details were probably secret because you can't really run a program like that uh, very well if you are telling everyone what you're doing exactly. But the broad outlines, the fact that the FBI was doing this seems to have been pretty widely known in these upper echelon circles. And Hoover seems to have had quite a lot of buy-in from uh, from the White House and from key people in Congress. Uh, and that's pretty characteristic of Hoover. There were some things that he kind of took on his own uh, and didn't tend to ask for authorization for. One of those was bugs, microphone plants, which he understood as being different from wiretaps. So wiretaps, uh, he was very careful almost always about going to the attorney general, especially getting approval for wiretaps, bugs, which are microphones planted in, say, Martin Luther King's hotel room for one famous instance, uh, the FBI did do on its own, um, in part because that often entailed illegal trespass to get in, and they just didn't think anyone would sign off on it. Uh, but for the most part, Hoover was very careful about getting some sort of general authorization at the very least, in part because he didn't want to be the scapegoat. He didn't want to be the fall guy. And there are some really interesting moments, particularly in the Nixon administration, where Hoover says, uh-uh, you know, I am not going to do the thing you want me to do, good old buddy Richard Nixon, because I'm going to end up being the fall guy. It's going to delegitimate the FBI if, if people find out. So Hoover engaged in this extraordinary balancing act from the 30s and 40s and 50s, where he was engaged in these secret activities. He was enormously popular. He was managing politicians. He was articulating his conservative vision. He was kind of the master of the universe and succeeding on all levels with enormous popularity. And I would say because of that popularity, with legitimacy, at least to the American public. And part of the reason he was seen as legitimate, I think, was because uh, of both of his popularity, his successes, and that he had to some extent, political buy-in. And all of this kind of came crashing down in the 60s. Can you, can you explain that? Yeah, if you look at Hoover's popularity ratings in the 1950s, they're pretty extraordinary. So uh, one Gallup poll, I think it was around 1953 or so, just asked the basic question, you know, do you think J. Edgar Hoover is doing a good job? 78% of the public said yes, about 20% said they didn't have any particularly strong opinion, and only 2% of the people polled said no. And that's kind of amazing, especially given what we think about Hoover in general today. But it would be amazing for any political figure to have those kinds of popularity ratings. And that really does begin to sort of decline and then fracture in the 1960s. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. So one is just that Hoover is getting old, gets getting older, um, seems culturally much more out of touch with the new generation. It's clear he's not moving as quickly as he once did. Um, and so, you know, by the time he's in his 70s, people are saying, come on, maybe maybe the moment has come for you to step down. But I think more importantly, you know, the very fractious politics of that decade and Hoover's very open campaigns against the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, the Black Panthers, the anti-war movement, student protesters, makes him quite unpopular among liberals and leftists and young people. Uh, actually, makes him still pretty popular among conservatives. But that's the moment where you really see this dramatic divide start to emerge and when Hoover's reputation uh, really starts to slip in a significant way. And I think that's the moment that is still with us today, right? That division, uh, those sets of controversies. And, and was that, I couldn't tell from the book 
whether you thought, maybe the answer is both, whether you thought that the political situation was just such in the 60s that the kind of bridging of consensus and generating of consensus and legitimacy that Hoover pulled off in the previous three decades, it was just not possible because of the nature of the politics in the 60s? Or was it because Hoover, maybe because of his age, was losing his touch? I mean, he was going after those groups very aggressively in public, as you said, uh, in ways that you know, did not have popular support the way going after communists did. So was it was it Hoover's failing or was it the era or was it both? I think it was definitely some of both. You know, I think Hoover thought and thought wrongly that the things that he had done to communists in the 40s and 50s that had made him so popular, you know, he could kind of transfer all of these attacks on the old left onto attacks against the new left. But he was very slow to see that the new left and the civil rights movement in particular just had a much broader popular constituency than the communist party ever did. And that in fact, uh, this wasn't really going to fly in the same way. And then in Washington itself, right, you are having uh, the parties are changing, the politics are changing, civil rights in particular is kind of fracturing a lot of these old alliances, it's fracturing the Democratic Party. And so uh, these kind of networks of support that Hoover had built up um, and the, the sort of bipartisan nature of what he had tried to do in the 40s and 50s just the political situation was changing and it, and it wasn't going to hold anymore. One of the things Hoover did, the, his, his secrecy system started to leak out in the mid-60s, uh, first through the Supreme Court and then through a break-in in, in uh, Media Pennsylvania into an FBI office that revealed lots of documents. But before the, the latter thing happened, Hoover, I, I knew about this, but I still think it's extraordinary and don't understand it. He basically abruptly, I think in about 67 or so, he just stopped or almost stopped or cut way back on his use of electronic surveillance uh, techniques. Why did he do that? I mean, he was, did, did he see that his political support and thus legitimate, legitimation for engaging in those things were, were collapsing? He did so in the face of concern, I think, at least in the Nixon White House and within the FBI, that he was making a mistake. And it was a really extreme about face. Well, how do you explain that? It is a truly bizarre moment in Hoover's history in the mid-60s, sort of starting in 65, but then really 66, 67. He declares that the FBI is going to stop using all of these techniques, which had been really central to its political surveillance in particular. Uh, he says they're not going to use black bag jobs anymore. And those were cases in which FBI agents would basically break into your meeting hall or your house, either to plant a microphone or uh, to steal documents or photograph them. Uh, they weren't going to use mail covers anymore, which was secretly opening people's mail. They were going to cut back dramatically on wiretaps, a whole range of pretty basic techniques that the FBI had been using for a long time. Uh, he restricts them and they really do get restricted um, for this period of time. So the question is, why would J. Edgar Hoover of all people do that? And I think the real answer is that he was kind of attuned to both a set of investigations that were going on in Congress that turned out not to be as extensive as he feared that they would be. Uh, but he was very nervous about what Congress was going to demand from the FBI in terms of disclosures, etc. Um, and then the other is that he did despite his being out of touch in certain ways, uh, he did perceive what I think was a real shift underway, uh, which was uh, that the public was not going to be as supportive of these kind of techniques as they had once been. Now, one of the things that he does is also just become sort of even more secretive about what the FBI is actually doing. So COINTELPRO is, is still going on during those years. But it is a funny moment. And uh, 
uh, when Nixon comes into office and says, you know, Edgar, you've got to get back in the game here. Hoover basically says no. And uh, Nixon says, uh, okay, well, I guess there's nothing I can do then. Yeah, it's, it's really quite extraordinary. Um, so one of the, again, another great part of the book is your very sensitive and deft and fair-minded analysis of his relationship, Hoover's relationship, his long-term relationship with Clyde Tolson. Could you tell us about that? Uh, you know, how it began, who Tolson was, and what is your assessment of their relationship? Clyde Tolson was the most important person in Hoover's life. I think there's no question about that. And that was both because they worked together for many, many decades as the number one and number two man at the FBI, but their relationship went well beyond that. And they basically were each other's spouses. Uh, they were sort of a social couple and were a very open social couple and, and very widely accepted. And so they had all their meals together. They traveled together. They socialized together. They went to nightclubs together. They went to family events and funerals. They signed all of their personal correspondence as, you know, Edgar and Clyde. And so they really functioned as this as this social couple and this very widely accepted social couple, which is kind of extraordinary to think about. Um, at the same time, there are pieces of that relationship that were quite secret. Um, so we don't know what they were actually doing in the bedroom. Did they have a sexual relationship? In the end, we just don't know that for sure. It's clear neither one of them was really dating women. And they, of course, denied any suggestion uh, that they were a homosexual couple. And in fact, you know, the FBI was very involved in purging gay people from the federal government, especially in the 40s and 50s. And Hoover would send FBI agents out to, you know, ordinary citizens who at a party said, hey, you know, I heard this rumor about the director's sexuality. You would actually have an FBI agent show up at your door and say, you shouldn't be saying these terrible things about Mr. Hoover, who is the finest, most upstanding American in the, in the, in the country. So it's a complicated story, but he and Tolson were, were, were basically together for, for 40 years. And, and I think they really loved each other. Yeah, I, that's what came across, that they really had deep affection for one another. Anyway, you told that story just with, with in great detail and with great subtlety. I thought it was excellent. Okay, my last question is this. Your book is relentlessly non-presentist, which I admire. You don't talk about much, very little at the end, about what the FBI after Hoover, uh, and only in the first few years. So I'm just wondering, and I don't know if you want to answer this or have any views about this, but you know, Hoover pulled off for 40 years this kind of extraordinary legitimation of uh, a secret uh, law enforcement and intelligence agency in the homeland, which is on its face a, a threat or problematic for American democracy. He pulled it off with... I think it's fair to say, you know, public legitimacy. Uh, but he did so through selective secrecy, lack of real accountability. As, as you point out, he had buy-in in various ways. But it wasn't exactly what we would today think of as a, a real system of accountability. And yet he was able to achieve these, you know, this, these decades of uh, legitimate action. And... Of course, there were huge reforms after Hoover died and the Church Commission, all, many of the secrets came out. And the FBI today is much different. And it seems to me that it struggled to get out from underneath the shadow of Hoover. And, I, and I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that it can. And it's obviously going through a particularly difficult time now. So I'm just wondering what thoughts, if any, you have on Hoover's legacy for the modern FBI. Well, I think the FBI today still has some pretty basic stamps of the Hoover era. So one is just in the basic range of its duties, being both a law enforcement agency and a domestic intelligence agency, right? Those both come out of the Hoover era. Um, I think that the sort of tension between the two traditions of Hoover's life, which is uh, a kind of professional, nonpartisan, good government just the facts 
identity and a pretty conservative internal culture to the bureau. Right? I think those pieces are, are are still there, though we could we could contest to what degree. And I think that you're right that the kind of shadow of Hoover and the awareness of the abuses of the Hoover era um, are still there, both within the bureau and then outside the bureau as kind of great cautionary tales. Um, There are, I guess, a couple of things beyond that that strike me as being particularly interesting about our present moment. So one is that obviously we do not want a FBI director who's in place for 48 years, right? I think of all the many reforms deciding that one man shouldn't have that kind of relatively unaccountable power within a democratic system. I think we could probably all agree on that. But one of the things that his power actually enabled Hoover to do was, you know, to in fact resist some of the political pressures that he was under at various points in ways that I think, you know, can be harder in the current context in which uh, there's both a lot more uh, accountability, which is good, but to some degree less autonomy than, than might have been there during the Hoover era. And then the other thing that's particularly interesting to me about this moment is the ways in which the FBI's partisan reputation has really flipped. So when Hoover died, uh, he was much more popular and the FBI was much more popular among conservatives and Republicans than among liberals and Democrats. And that lasted pretty unbroken for most of the the late 20th and into the 21st century. And now those polls have actually flipped. And a lot of that just has to do with the Trump investigations and uh, the FBI's battles with Trump himself in particular. But uh, so it's been interesting to see. I don't think it's great news for the FBI to see these kind of perceptions of it as really just a a partisan organization deeply engaged in politics. But that is a dilemma that Hoover would have recognized. And I think in some ways, you know, it's kind of baked into the FBI. They're supposed to be independent. They're part of the executive branch. They're outside politics. They're pulled into these political investigations all the time. But Hoover, it was easier for Hoover to achieve legitimacy than it is for the modern FBI. He he was able to have and and foster close relationships with presidents and politicians in ways that the strong norms today are that the FBI is supposed to keep arm's length from those groups. He was able to maintain a secrecy system that, you know, basically made it harder to subject him to any form of public accountability in a way that the modern FBI has a harder time to do. Uh, the modern FBI has many legal restrictions and reporting requirements and the like. And the modern FBI, unlike uh, Hoover, is in the regular business uh, of investigating very senior public officials. And, all, and you know, Hoover would have had a hell of a time with, with that issue and try, tried to avoid it most of the time. So I just think it just seems to me that uh, the modern FBI can't replicate what Hoover accomplished. And we, and we wouldn't want them to replicate what Hoover accomplished the way he accomplished it, I think. And yet it's not clear that they have tools to legitimate what they're doing. Yeah, I think that's a really that's a really fair assessment. And that's kind of the the dilemma. Um, we can see all the things that went wrong during the Hoover era. Uh, my book tries to suggest as well a few of the things that 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 maybe went a little more right than we might have understood, but we certainly don't want to go back to that model. And so so is the model that we have now as effective? Do we need to rethink that one as well? Beverly, thank you. It's really an extraordinary book. Thanks for talking with me. All right. Thanks so much, Jack. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, And your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo.
Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.